filled with teaching, truths and issues that matter. Bernie Diamond's A Different Perspective, part of Night Vision each weeknight. Details at vision.org.au. Life, culture and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. We're going to be talking about marriage, but perhaps in a different way than you might ever have heard marriage being talked about. Well, the first years of marriage are often challenging as couples work out how to manage their many differences. And lurking in the background is an often unnoticed intruder. The different expectations and influences from our family of origin. Now, it's not that parents are always intrusive or overbearing, but rather these influences are much more pervasive and evident in every marriage through historical experiences that date back to our early childhood and the early childhood of our spouse. In other words, the things that we bring to our marriage are often shaped by our parents. Our expectations, both conscious and subconscious, can affect the way we think of what it means to be a husband or a wife. Well, let's get into a conversation today. Francine Parola is back with us. She and her husband, Byron, are directors of the Marriage Resource Centre and are co-authors of the Smart Loving series. And Francine, I must say, wonderful privilege, a special welcome back to 2020. Oh, thank you, Neil. Look, it's just a delight to be here. Um, I'm really enjoying our chats, and uh, I hope your listeners are getting a lot out of it too. Well, we're going to be talking through the idea of when history repeats, and it really affects every marriage. And uh, not to leave people out of this conversation, because it's not just people who are married, but those who have been married... And sometimes marriage has gone on the rocks and, uh, you know, you're suffering the consequences of, of some of the things we'll talk about today. Uh, but also for those who've not yet married, this relates to everyone, the way we talk about our parents' influence in our lives. Absolutely, absolutely. And in fact, very influential in our dating relationships and even our friendships. Um, there's lots of influences that we bring from those early childhood experiences so it's a very rich topic, and we, on our marriage seminars and, and our marriage preparation courses, we dedicate quite a bit of time to unpacking this because couples always find it so um, enlightening, and that's often real light bulb moments. And one man described it to us, one participant said, gosh, it's like discovering this attic in your house that you never knew was there and it's got all these old dusty heirlooms going back for generations and you're getting insights you come into this stumble into this room and you see all these insights and you discover all this history that you'd never really consciously kind of processed and it's illuminating what's happening in your in your uh, in your marriage in real time or in your relationships real time so we we kind of often think about it as a the metaphor of an attic that um maybe we don't go through the whole thing all at once but you know something might come up in you know years time that triggers something and we go you know what let's visit the attic again and see what insight we can get into what's happening with us now okay so opening the door climbing the stairs entering into the attic the sorts of things you might find there that have shaped you in your upbringing, shaped your past, the things that our parents 
uh, have left for us as a legacy. Uh, when we're up in the attic, there's good things and there's bad things. It's not just that there's lots of bad things in the attic. There's lots of good absolutely. things there too. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And in fact, the vast majority of what most of us bring from our family of origin is really positive and really helpful. We just don't notice it so much because it's not causing us problems. But it's a really valuable practice to actually dig around a bit, recognize that that's where it came from, call it out, because when you name it, you can actually enhance its impact into your life. And it's always wonderful to actually um, sort of connect with that sense of gratitude for the giftedness that we have. So we always like to start with, let's at least connect with something positive. Um, we, we, we don't want to spend a huge amount of time on it because the things that are really helpful is to deal with the, the stuff that's causing us problems, but it's really important to start from that foundation of... Our parents have given us, you know, so much of positive value that let's let's really claim that, and so that we can enhance it in our marriages and in our lives. Francine, as we sort of set the scene for this conversation, take us to the really important parts, uh, those things that our parents had in their marriage, uh, or even their broken marriage, or however the parent uh, way of influence happened upon us. What are the important things that we perhaps? need to understand about how we related to our parents. And, of course, everybody's got a different story, but there must be some things that are common ground here. Yes. What, are, what are the things we look for when we're, when we're discussing these history moments with our parents? So there's, there's a couple of, I think, very helpful frameworks to take into this. Um, one is this idea of how we respond to it. So whatever that formation is, positive or negative, there's the way we respond to it. And there's typically two ways. We either adopt it, often without a lot of conscious thought, almost like a habit or a mannerism or, you know, sometimes you meet kids and you kind of say, oh, he's so much like his dad or he's so much like a mother. And it's almost like just living in the space. We've absorbed it by osmosis and, 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 you know, it can extend to even things like, you know, speech styles or, or postures and things like that, as well as the actual kind of ideas and relationship. So we've adopted often without any conscious thought. The other way that we do it is by rejecting it. We saw something in our family of origin and we said, I don't want that, I don't like that, that had a really bad impact on me. And we reject it with so much vigour that we swing to the opposite extreme. And it's, it's a real radical rejection. Now, the problem with both of those kinds of things is, is not whether we adopted or what, what the judgment of it was. It's that we're often doing it subconsciously, without intention, without thought. And so there's a lack of freedom in that. So we always like to pitch this exercise as, look, this is about freedom. We're, we're not coming at this with a preconceived idea of what you're going to keep and what you're going to throw out or try to process but to be more intentional about what you're doing, to bring it into your conscious awareness so that you can actually be free about it. Because even if we've radically rejected and we've kind of said, I don't want to be like that, if we're compulsively resisting it, we're still sort of in some ways trapped. Like, let, me, let me give you a uh, real example to help unpack this. So in my home, um, very orderly, routine basis. My parents um, you know, had a very kind of structured life. So, you know, mum would... Um, she was a full-time mum. She would put the washing on the first thing in the morning, clothes would be on the line. She'd bring them in at 3 o'clock before they started to get damp. As the sun went down, she'd have mine back in the cupboards by 5 o'clock. That was her routine. She did that almost every day. Dinner was on the table at 6.30. I absorbed from that the idea that, well, firstly, laundry was a, was a wife's responsibility and, you know, this idea of a, you know, the, the routine. 
Well, in Byron's family, it was quite different. Um, they, they were much more sort of fluid and flexible and spontaneous. And, you know, Byron, when, I'm, when we married, he'd been living out of home for three years doing his PhD. So he'd been doing his own laundry. So he didn't have come in with any expectation that I would do the laundry. But I came with the expectation that I'd do the laundry. And, we, and I didn't like this idea of the routine. I loved the idea of spontaneity. So I rejected this idea of having to do this sort of rigid routine. But I didn't process the idea of the attachment of the, you know, the wife doing the laundry as a symbol of her being a good wife. So we had this situation in our first six months of marriage where I wouldn't let Byron do the laundry, but I didn't get, get, the, get it done. So we had literally every clothes, piece of clothing we owned was sitting on the bed piled up waiting to be ironed and nothing in the cupboard to wear because I wouldn't let Byron do the ironing. And he was kind of going, look, I've got to get a shirt. Can I just iron my shirt? And I'd relent and let him get his shirt. But I was caught up in this kind of um, subconscious, um, you know, conflict around this, but this is a good wife who's supposed to do the ironing. I can't let my husband do that because that would mean I'm not a good wife. And so it really took a little bit of us sort of stepping back and saying, hang on a minute. Now, it sounds like a trivial example, and we did process it fairly quickly. There's other more serious examples, but you can see the idea. I had rejected the idea of the routine, but I hadn't rejected the value system that a good wife is supposed to be a good ironer. And And so it was causing us grief. Does that kind of make sense? It does make sense. And uh, I do love the way you have just, uh, you know, put your own dirty laundry out there, so to speak, uh, in the sense of what you're... (laughs) Exactly. But, you know what, talking about that by way of the trivial, but I know that there'll be listeners who are thinking, well, my problems were much more serious than that. And, you know, they led us to the brink of divorce or or the arguments that happen constantly in our home, all of these challenges, not all trivial, yeah. but uh, sometimes gets very, very serious. But I imagine that where we're heading in this conversation, uh, when you use that word freedom, uh, we're yeah. going to get to a point very shortly where we'll start to talk about how you actually get freedom, whether it's a trivial issue or whether it's a serious one, because I imagine the same principle applies whether it's trivial or serious. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, and, and in fact, it can often be, um, you know, the whole ideas that we absorb around, well, what is a wife supposed to do? What is the, you know, we, we all aspire to be a good wife or a good husband. And we've absorbed, I guess, ideas around what that looks like. And, and if we're not kind of matching those sort of internal images, we've got an internal conflict, which is what was happening for me, but it was also manifesting into our relationship and causing difficulty in our relationship because, um, you know, it was disrupting Byron's life. Like, he needed, he needed to have some clothes to wear to work, right? Yeah. So there's, there's, there's an internal kind of um, conflict that's often happening as well as the conflict that can happen with, between us as husband and wife. Francine, you talk about the parent of the other sex. So uh, for a little girl, the father, for a little boy, his mother. Uh, Talking about these, the most significant uh, relationships where we're picking up some of these cues. Yes, yes. So, um, I mean, obviously both parents are really important, but they can be important in different ways and they've got different significance in the lives of, of, of us. And... For me as a, as a young girl, my father was the most significant and the very first significant male in my life. And so I kind of learnt about myself as a different sort of, different in sex to him in, in, real, in the way that I related to him. 
and similarly for Byron with his mother and so on. And it's kind of an interesting observation that, um, uh, you know, psychologists have often observed that we tend to marry or to be attracted to somebody who at some level helps us that helps us feel comfortable about that kind of style of relationship that we had. Now that kind of, you know, can make us go, oh my gosh, you're saying that I married somebody just like my, you know, like my father or, you know, my mother. Um, that can be a little bit, you know, intimidating for us. But it's not so much that they're just like it, but there's something about that the way that they interact with us that fits into that space of comfort or that familiarity with us. And it can be a positive or a negative kind. It can be familiar so, for example, if a, if a, you know, a girl, to, to give a very extreme, um, was in a, a father was abusive towards her or, or you know, aggressive and violent, she can be attracted into that because that's what feels normal and familiar to her. And so that's in a dysfunctional kind of context, but there can also be some very obviously positive and, and functional aspects as well. well. So it's kind of important to sort of reflect a little bit on how do we, how do we relate, how did they relate to us, um, you know, was there a sense of respect between us? Was there affection? Was there tenderness? Was there good humour? Um, or was it, you know, did we feel judged and not good enough? Did we feel, um, you know, like we were always trying to make up for a deficit in that relationship with the parent of the opposite sex? Because we kind of bring those things into the into our marriages. It gets complicated, doesn't it, when there has been some dysfunction in the family in the background and uh, yeah. perhaps where there's been uh, multiple marriage partners and children uh, being influenced in different ways. And, uh, you know, if I was sharing something personal uh, from my experience, my mother died when I was five years of age. Uh, so my sister and I were shuffled off to our grandparents and then my father remarried. So when we talk about, you know, this influence that comes from the opposite sex parents, I had a, I have a mother, I have a grandmother, and I have a stepmother, all with bringing their own different influence. So it gets very complicated, doesn't it, uh, when it you've got uh, things that happen that are beyond our control. Yes, yes, exactly. And look, we usually what we do when we're running these kind of sessions in our workshops is that we'll get them to just identify, um, we want one um, role model of marriage. So, if, if there's been a you know a mix of things like in your background, we would we'd be asking you to think about well, what was the one that I guess was you spent the most time with, or the one that made the most the, the strongest kind of impression on you, and just focus on that for the activity. You can repeat the activities looking at the other relationships, but you would just start with the one that was the most significant. And, and then thinking, so it's a married relationship because we, we kind of learn by observing and then we also learn by interacting. Um, and then we think about, well, what was the most significant mother and most significant father figure? And we've, the, 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 the significance of the relationship tends to change as we age. So, you know, at birth, the mother is particularly significant because, you know, she's responsible for, the, you know, this breastfeeding and, and typically the primary carers, not always, but, you know, mostly that's the pattern. And, of course, you know, she's carried us within her body for nine months, so there's a very strong psychological connection between the, the baby and the, and the mother. So in those very early years, that the role of the mother in providing that sense of safety and security is very significant. But the father figure um, provides, I guess, a sense of otherness. So you know, when we're born, we're, we're sort of psychologically don't know how to differentiate ourselves from our mothers because we've literally been engulfed <laughs> by her at birth. 
And so the, the presence of the father figure has a very important role in, in helping to help the child to differentiate from the mother. And then up into the teenage years, fathers become increasingly important in terms of affirming and confirming the sexual identity of the child. And so the, the relative, I know all my children now, my youngest is um, 17. My role is, is, has got much more diminished as they've got older and Byron's role has become far more significant, um, you know, in terms of uh, affirming their sexuality, helping them think about their career choices and, and things like that. They'll, they'll always go to him in preference to me. They'll, they'll chat to me. They come to me to be, I guess, the more of the emotional um, support and, and um, validation whereas they kind of go to Byron more for that sense of, of, um, of challenge and being, you know, extended. And it's not to say, and that could be partly a personality thing, a difference in us, but I think there's also something about the way that um, mothers and fathers work out how to complement each other that's based in these natural sort of nurturing roles. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. We're talking when history repeats in our marriage. Francine Parola is our guest and we're taking calls. 1-800-316-316. You can also leave a note on our Facebook page. In fact, Francine, just let's go to a note from a Facebook uh, listener who says... My parents never divorced. They didn't have a perfect marriage, but they stayed together and made it work. They were both Christians. My husband and I were both Christians, but he recently divorced me. His parents were divorced and not Christians. We had another, we had other godly role models in our church. I think we can learn from them. For my husband, he learned from his parents to walk away and not fight for the marriage. I wonder whether you've got a, a few thoughts for the way that, you know, even people who feel like they're coming from a great foundation, perhaps sharing the same faith values, uh, but mm. what comes from our parents sometimes influences us in strange ways. Yeah, yeah. And and look, firstly, just, you know, my heart goes out to to that um, that listener. I mean, just the the trauma of dealing with a, a marriage that's breaking down. I mean, it's just, I can't imagine. So I just, yes, thank you for, thank you for sharing. Um, and such a, sadly, such a common story. And we know that statistically there is a higher likelihood of somebody divorcing if their parents have divorced. And, you know, I think, you know, this listener has pointed out some of the very obvious ways that that happens is that if you don't get that role modeling from your parents that marriage is worth fighting for that you know you need to forgive and resolve your arguments you don't just sort of walk away and and you know try and start again that you you sort of work to try to fix the marriage that you've got that that's always going to be kind of working against you um, now that's not to say that you know Every marriage can be saved or every marriage should be saved. There are some, you know, situations, particularly in cases of serious abuse, where, you know, separation and possibly divorce is the only appropriate response. But for the vast majority, I think, of, of divorces that happen today could be prevented with um, the right support and with starting from those very earliest years. I don't want to sound pessimistic because it doesn't mean that if your parents divorce, you're necessarily set up for failure later on. 
the most important thing is to be aware of the influences and to put in place positive um, safety nets and, and, and to displace it with other things that it's going to be supportive. So while the statistics kind of say there's an increased likelihood, it's not a foregone conclusion. It just means that you need to work a little bit harder. And is it the case, Francine, if your parents got it so badly wrong, it's so obvious, and mm. you can see the faults, they're just out there for everyone to see, that perhaps that's easier to make that assessment and deal with than if it was much more subtle and and uh, not quite so obvious? Very true, very true. Um, the, the, the whole, I guess, um, shame factor that often comes into this is that, you know, we're very appropriately, I guess, protective of our families. Uh, we don't really want to be hanging out the dirty laundry for everybody to see. So sometimes that can mean that it, it keeps us away from getting the help that we need in order to, you know, really repair the marriage or bring it to a sort of optimum health. Um, it can also keep us silent for years later and prevent us from, from looking into it. A really common resistance we often get from couples when we kind of present this topic, um, particularly you know, for faith-filled Christian couples, is they'll say, but hang on, the Ten Commandments say you've got to honour our mother and father. We, we're not allowed to criticise them. And I think we, we need to unpack that a little bit because what we're doing here is not so much um, making judgments on our parents because the reality is we can never know the details of what's going on for, for our parents, even though we know them really well, that's something only they and God can really understand. We, we, we kind of don't fully understand the kinds of things that they've grown up with and are dealing with and processing from their own childhood. So it's not about making a judgment about our parents. It's really about looking at making a judgment about what we concluded and perceived. So we often have observed that sometimes what we think was going on is not actually the reality. To give you a really good example, remember Byron tells a story with our second son. He was then about seven years old. And he made a statement around, well, daddies don't cry. And he was, you know, puffed up with this as well. Real man, they don't cry. Daddies don't cry. And, and my daddy doesn't cry. And so I'm not going to cry. And Byron was really taken aback because he said, well, I mean, obviously he does cry. He's cried with me. He's been times, you know, his sadness where he's expressed that with tears. But it wasn't Chris's experience. In his seven years of experience, he had never seen his father cry. And therefore his conclusion was is that daddies, all daddies, daddies don't cry. It's true for him, but it wasn't actually reality. But that was what was forming him. And so part of being able to approach a family of origin with freedom is kind of reminding ourselves that what we're looking at is not so much what the reality of us in our parents' relationship because we really don't know the details there, but what do we perceive? Even subconsciously we're forming impressions and taking messages away from what we were seeing going on around us and incorporating that into a belief system that we then subsequently take on with us into life. Okay, there's that makes sense. There's a clue here about getting free. It's not about whether our parents either got it right or wrong. It's about the way we perceive, and we'll talk some more about that. Let's take a call. We are taking yep. calls on one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. Jason is in Victoria. Hello, Jason. Welcome along. G'day. Hi, Neil. Hi to your guest. I have a girlfriend called Melissa Anson, and she and I have not are not married yet, and we'll be married one day. We are inspired by her and mother and father have been married for 30 years and my mum and dad have been married for over 40 years and a man at my church 
who was married for over 50 years. Uh, right, well, great role models there, Jason. Uh, thoughts for, for Jason, uh, Francine, because sounds like he's coming from a stable family background himself, his uh, fiance, stable background, even the role models in his church, stable background. That's got to be a positive, hasn't it? Yeah, uh, look, absolutely. You've, you've been blessed with a great setup. Um, there's still work to be done. There's always something that we you know, can benefit from in just um, uh, reviewing it a little bit, even if it's only to identify those really positive things that you've come in so that you can embrace them more actively into your own relationship. So there's, there's, this, is a, this is a kind of activity that I think has merit for everybody regardless of where they are and what their situation is. It's not just something for people that have had really difficult upbringings. It's for all of us. There's much much that we can learn from it. Uh, Jason from Victoria, thanks so much for your call. We're just a couple of minutes out from news. Uh, want to touch on this before we uh, get to news, but perhaps let's talk more about this issue of freedom. Uh, Francine, yes. because uh, we'll be looking for solutions. If we know that we've yes. got influences in our, you know, the attic we're in, uh, where yes. do we look to start to find a level of freedom here? So we like to unpack, and I do, the, the first thing you've got to do is when you've, I guess, when you've got a bit of a, a tension or you're, you're triggering each other in something that you're doing or saying, is is to sort of step back from that for a little bit. So we have a little a little tool that we call the time out to ask why. So whenever we sort of feel triggered by the other, we kind of go, hang on a minute, I just need to take some time to think this through. Then we go and kind of mentally do that attic visit and think about where's this coming from you know why am i getting why is he getting under my skin on this like this this is this is really important to me where is it coming from why is it important and often you know in the context of prayer as well with a bit of divine inspiration it'll become apparent to us that oh my gosh i'm just playing out that relates to the way my brother related to me it might not even be a parent it might be a way we were interacting with a sibling who were also very influential in our childhood you know and when he does that it's like he's reminding me of a painful kind of interaction that i had with my brother of you know perhaps not being accepted or being you know left out or something or whatever it might have been um and then we kind of can go okay let's go back and talk about this and revisit this so at the time out to ask why the little tools and a kind of a personal discipline that helps us sort of step back from the situation Francine, just uh, when we talk about these sorts of things, we can get bogged down in uh, talking about all of the effects and sometimes that's all bad. When we talk about finding freedom, let's get our attention on that because I know that there'll be listeners thinking, well, uh, it's all very well to talk about all these bad things that might be influencing me, but how do I get free from those? Uh, where do we start? Yeah, right. So one of the things we found very helpful is to kind of look at the type of the, the pattern of the formation and then put it into one of three categories because there's different strategies depending on the category. So the first category is what we just call in incompatible expectations. And this is the really obvious stuff. It's like, you know, in his family, they did it this way and in her family, they did it a different way and then they're coming together and they're like trying to work out and what to do it. A really classic one for Byron and I was the de process of decision making. So in my family, very orderly and organised, they like to sort of to keep things simple. So they made mum and dad made decisions quickly. They got the facts, they made decisions, they stuck to it. Simplify life, get on with it. 
Byron's family work on the principle of keep your options open. So they would delay making decisions for as long as possible so that they could have, you know, maximise the outcome. Put that into our relationship and even during our wedding preparations, um, we were butting up against each other just in terms of the way we were going to make decisions. Forget about what the decision was going to be. It was just in the process of making decisions. I remember doing it in our marriage preparation weekend. I, I drew a little journal drawing of a, an image of me, a stick figure of me there with you know, my arms stretched out with my parents pulling me on one side saying, make a decision, and, <laughs> and Byron and his family on the other side saying, keep your options open. Yeah. Um, so that's been something that's been really quite challenging for us because it, it plays out in almost every decision we make. That's an example of an incompatible expectation. and we, We've got just different formation, different ways of doing it. Um, and those sorts of things are often easy to recognise because it's, you know, a little bit of conversation and it becomes apparent. Well, but in your family you did it this way, in our family we did it that way. Okay, well, we've got to find a new way. There's no manual for this new relationship. We've got to work it out for ourselves. Okay, um, that's, a, that's one way. And uh, I know there's yes. three uh, ways here to yes. see this problem. So one, incompatible expectations. Uh, what's yep. the second one we ought to look for? The second one is what we call compatible but suboptimal. That's a little bit trickier to identify because in this, we can both have the same formation, but it might be suboptimal. So an example might be that perhaps in both families, the mothers were the primary child carer and they became quite dominant in terms of caring for the children and developed a pattern of very child-focused, perhaps to the neglect of their husbands. Now, if you've got that on both sides, you can see that they would both come in with that expectation that that's the role that the wife would take, that she would become more child-focused than husband-focused and that he would expect to be kind of excluded perhaps from the decisions and, and you know, just be the, the hapless dad that hangs up, that, you know, comes along as, a, as the extra child in the family, which is sort of sometimes see that pattern. And they may not realise that that's actually suboptimal. I mean, we can see it when I describe it like that because I'm putting kind of an, you know, a slightly negative interpretation on it but there can be lots of different ways so you know the classic one is you came from both divorced families you'll both have this sense of well marriage doesn't have to be forever you know my parents had a life after divorce maybe divorce is not that bad if you both have that kind of thing obviously from our christian perspective that's a suboptimal it might be compatible but it's not the ideal or if they both had um you know drug addiction in their homes or pornography use or uh, infidelity they might be compatible, but they're obviously not the optimal way in terms of living the marriage to the fullness of our Christian vision. Now, Francine, the third one, uh, what's the third one of these third, ways to see the problem? The, the third one is the emotional injuries. So these are the kinds of um, psychological and emotional wounds we absorbed through a direct interaction, usually with one or the other parent, not necessarily kind of from observing them. So the first two relate to how we observed our parents interacting. This one really relates more to how we interacted with them directly and how we were um, potentially wounded. Um, and we've all got it. Even if magnificent, wonderful parents who hardly ever made a mistake, there's just the reality of the human condition that we can, you know, you know, be wounded. We can misinterpret things sometimes or there can be actual serious deficits in terms of the parenting and what we, um, you know, really were had the right to receive in terms of nurture and care and safety and so on that sometimes our parents 
um, you know, fail to deliver that. I know as a mother I'm certainly guilty of, of failing my children, you know, times when I've been so strung out and stressed and I've lost my temper and I've shouted and I've just, you know, seen this, you know, little child crumple terror before me and I think, oh my gosh, I can just see them, you know, in 20 years' time on a marriage seminar talking about how they were crushed by their parents. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah. we've constantly got that reminder because we're doing this work. We're often thinking, what are our children going to be saying about us in uh, 20, 30 years' time? So, so it's part of, I guess, the human condition that we, um, we're imperfect, we make mistakes. But those things, if we're not processed properly, they can continue to impact us into our adult life. We're talking when history repeats in our marriage. Let's take a call and our talkback line open one eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. Let's hear from Sue in Brisbane. Hello, Sue. Welcome along. Oh, hello there. Um, look, yeah, I just wanted to uh, say that I, both my husband and I, um, both our marriages broke up, and we weren't Christians. We walked away, and um, it wasn't until after we got saved and, and we got married and we had so much baggage that we brought into the relationship that, you know, we were fighting and and I used to feel so bad and, you know, I used to cry out to God and say, well, God, how is this a witness to our children? You know, we are Christians and I suppose I had that um, unrealistic expectations that, you know, once we were Christians, we wouldn't fight, but uh, I just felt so bad and, and I felt like such a bad um, mother, you know, because we weren't setting a good example to the kids, but well, we got through it, you know, and as a matter of fact, it's our 27th anniversary today. Well, congratulations, we, Sue. Thank you, thank you. And um, But it wasn't until later on that, you know, I found myself um, talking to the kids and, and saying to them, you know, like in the first marriage, we didn't have God and we walked away. Um, but we we still had problems in the second marriage, in this marriage now, when we first got married. We still had problems, um, and probably more because we had brought baggage into it. But with God, we were able to work through it, and the kids could see that you know the difference. So um, wonderful insight there that you're bringing. Let's get a response uh, from Francine for Sue. Oh, Sue, thanks for your, your sharing with us power of prayer and the power of faith I honestly I don't know how anybody keeps a marriage together in the current culture without faith to support them because the cultural expectations and the pressures from society they're all working against us they're kind of the messages we're bombarded with day after day is you know seize the day you know live life now, don't worry about, you know, it's all about individual fulfilment and this kind of pursuit of hedonistic happiness. Don't get tied down with responsibilities. That's totally counter to, I guess, the message or the, the foundation that we need in order to have a, a joy-filled and enduring marriage. So I think our faith communities are just so essential in supporting in supporting us. We, You know, we understand that even people of faith can still end up you know, tragedy befalling them. 
but I think our chances are so much improved with um, when we're bringing God into into the situation. So thank you for that. That's really important. Sue from Brisbane, thank you so much for your call. One eight hundred three sixteen three sixteen. If you'd like to join in our conversation, Francine, uh, I want to get to something here. When we're talking about getting free from some of these things that are influences upon us, and and you took it even beyond parents and said it could be siblings, it could be grandparents, it could be those people who are in influential in our lives and so the baggage can come from all sorts of places but I know you like to talk about naming the problem in order to start a process of getting free from it Uh, what's so important about actually just naming what the problem is well I guess um, there's a couple of different uh, angles you can take on this in in the scriptures we know that names are really important and so you know it was Abraham and then God renamed him Abraham you know Paul became Saul um, Simon became Peter and so on so there's and and the names mean something they've got a a meaning that somehow encapsulates the substance of the significance of that person so you know in Peter it means rock he's the rock on which you know the Lord is going to build his church and so on so there's the name there's that biblical kind of lens that we can bring to it that that names are important in terms of it come from a psychological point of view is that naming it i guess helps us i guess assert well a A brings it to our consciousness so it brings it out of the subconscious into our conscious awareness is the first thing but the second thing is that when we name it we assert control and authority well we assert authority over it we might not be able to control it but we go take a step towards asserting authority over it so when we can name it we can kind of almost, if you like, take it out from inside and put it out where we can objectively sort of view it from almost outside of the situation. And then we can sort of more rationally think about, well, what do I need to do to deal with this? Whereas when it's kind of sort of swimming around like a, a current underneath the water in our subconscious, it's pushing us around left and right and we don't really know what it is. We can't see it. We can't... We, we just you know, um, experiencing the effects of it without really being able to recognise it. So it's almost like if you think about the rip in the beach, it's like getting out of the beach and looking back and saying, oh, there's the current. Now I know how to deal with it. If I'm going to swim, I'll swim across it. I won't try and swim against it because that's just going to be exhausting. I'm not going to get anywhere. Francine, we can't always fix our spouse. And while we're talking about naming problems, ideally, no doubt, if you're in a marriage and you recognise that there's a rough patch you're going through, that both of you might be on the same page and talking through the issues, but you can't always fix your spouse. Your spouse might not be as interested or even uh, have the capacity to get their head around these sorts of maybe deeper things that we're talking about today. We can only work with ourselves. We have to start with ourselves, don't we? Absolutely, absolutely. And we like to say, you know, we, we a twist on the old phrase, we say it takes one to tango, um, not two. <laughs> um, because the reality is, if, you, if you've, somebody's got a difficult situation in their marriage, the real kind of insight into this is when they're feeling really helpless, you could ask them and say, is, can you think of something that you could do to make your relationship worse? If you really wanted to mess it up even more, what would you do? And they can always think of something. They could go out and have an affair. They could do this or they could, you know, walk away or refuse to talk or whatever it happens to be, right? They can always think of something. So it stands to reason if that one person can make the relationship worse, that one person can also make it better. And so if we work on um, owning our own stuff and improving ourselves and thinking about what can I do, my next step, 
or my next move in this relationship to move us to a more positive space what should that step be well then you change this you, you start to change the dance because you'll you'll change this you're changing your steps that will by necessar- necessarily change the dance and that will have that flow on impact now you might not see the impact straight away you've often got to take 30 steps or 40 steps or even 50 steps before you start to see an impact and sometimes those steps might be um, you know ultimately towards I guess a sort of an independence but I suppose you know in our Christian um, understanding is that that's the way of holiness and that's the way of faith I mean we're called to do that irrespective of whether our spouse is kind of matching our steps and so it's never lost even if the spouse doesn't respond or it doesn't rescue the marriage or um, we're still in a better space Uh, and and that's so it's important even just from that point of view. We have a lot of people in our community, and I'm talking a broader community here, not just people who are a part of a church, but they become sort of disembedded from the local church, and this has perhaps been going on for decades. Mm-hmm. Uh, but in my experience, uh, there are rock-solid role models who are in local churches when it comes to uh, marriage. Uh, people who, as we heard from one of our callers earlier on, you know, there's someone in their church who's been married for 50 years. There are rock-solid examples of people mm-hmm. who know how to navigate uh, the rough patches and uh, navigate yeah. some of these things about you know getting free from the things that will separate you uh, local churches are really really great hotbed of uh, wonderful uh, ways of influence on our marriage francine oh definitely and and we're very much in favor of promoting uh, you know small communities of couples and and things one of the things that we often get feedback from people when we're running our seminars because we share quite openly and almost it's like a confessional type sharings and um, in that sort of context of of, um, of assisting them to go deep into their own relationship and one of the things that they come back time and time again is that oh gosh we thought we were the only ones that had these difficulties it was just so helpful to know that you've experienced those problems other people in the room are experiencing. And so we kind of live in this bubble sometimes. We're so The shame keeps us silent about talking about the difficulties that we're facing. But the, the consequence of that is, is that we're all struggling to do this almost on our own. And so we need to create those communities and those environments where we can just be really honest with other couples about, oh, this is really hard and I'm struggling with this and, and you know, this happened and I do, you know, don't know what to do next because we can give each other a lot of support and even just that sort of normalization to say you know this is what this is the path of marriage i, I think for hollywood sells us this kind of fantasy that you know we, we walk down the aisle and then it's sort of riding off into the sunset and there's never you know it's love ever after and there's no problems well actually that's not the christian way i mean marriage is a gross institution it's a way to help us get to heaven and to grow in faith and in love and, and so sometimes a little bit of struggle in our marriage is ultimately for our betterment because it helps us to grow in virtue and to get better and, and go deeper into our faith. So we, we like to kind of, you know, reframe. If you're experiencing some friction in your relationship, look at that as a growth opportunity, not as a, a you know, an, an, a judgment of, or an indictment on, you know, your capacity to love. Just see that as a, an invitation to step out and grow even further in love. 
Sometimes we wait until things are at breaking point before we seek help. And, you know, when you're, uh, you and Byron, and, you know, you founded the Marriage Resource so the directors of the Marriage Resource Centre, uh, this idea of finding resources that help you get on top of these problems before they get to breaking point, no doubt that's a bit of good advice. Yes, absolutely. It's, a, it's the old immunisation versus... Um, you know, better better get inoculated from the the disease than be on the deathbed trying to cure you from the disease. So it's it's that same kind of principle, I suppose, is that sort of that early earlier intervention. It's often easier to deal with it than um, particularly, you know, as as it things go down the track, we've got an accumulation of of, uh, of unresolved wounds that make it um, even harder to process, even though they might all be little simple things. You know, cumulatively, those little pinpricks of hurt along the way can cumulatively add up to a lot. And we've heard things like somebody will say, you know, like something happened, it was the last straw and that was it, I was out of there. And you kind of say, well, what was it? It was something trivial, like he parked his boat in the driveway or, um, you know, she didn't fill up the car with petrol. It's like you, you divorced her because you walked out because of that. Well, it wasn't just that. It was, it was, a myriad of other things, little things like that, that just cumulative added up to something that was very significant for that person. And so, you know, that early intervention helps us deal with those little things as they come up so that they don't accumulate. And I imagine that once you've experienced uh, some level of freedom and you're on the same page and you recognise that there are some things that are baggage that you bring from your own upbringing or from uh, previous relationship experiences or others who've had influences on our life this idea of knowing what it is to feel free let's talk about this just we're only got a few minutes left in our conversation but what does it feel like to be free from those things in your marriage uh, you and Byron are clearly uh, in a very sound and strong and solid marriage uh, you clearly have worked through some stuff and you talk about your baggage and uh, airing all the dirty laundry that we we're talking about but but there must be a way that you can describe how it feels when you are free from those things and what it enables you to do, Francine. Yeah. Look, we're, we're far from your perfect couple. We're still very much a work in progress, I'm afraid. But absolutely the freedom is phenomenal because it's so easy to just feel weighted down and trapped and, um, you know, get stuck in those arg- protracted arguments that never seem to resolve. And so... Some of these disciplines, you know, going through this kind of, you know, time out to ask why, stepping back, thinking about it, then coming back in a disciplined way to together sort of problem solve on how we're going to process this and, and deal with it, um, is, is extraordinarily liberating because it's sort of like feeling, you know, like we're out of control and life's running us and all of a sudden we've kind of got some, some options, we've got some sense of control over our life again. Um, so this is these all of the and it's not just in the family of origin stuff it can be in the dynamic of understanding our differences as men and women uh, how we experience love and lots of different aspects where we can be uh, I guess tripping up and and you know bringing discord into our relationship that feels overwhelming uh, at the time because we don't know what to do with it or don't know how to process it. and I think when it comes up over and over again that is particularly disheartening and disempowering so the, these, all these little frameworks that we teach, they're sort of like circuit breakers. They're sort of things that you can just insert into that situation to break the pattern so that you can kind of almost just get a breath 
and then reset into a new direction. And of course, an appreciation that God is the architect of marriage between a man and a woman. So there must be some ways that that relationship works beautifully for the benefit of both a husband and a wife. And so I suspect that there's an element of hope that really is very powerful in here, that when you are going through some rocky patches, uh, circumstances that are sometimes beyond your control, an expectation of laying those things before God and uh, hopeful and expectant of a breakthrough so that you can experience this level of freedom. I'm sure that is something that we can leave with listeners today, is the expectation that you can have a wonderful and strong and free marriage and not denying, of course, that these things are complicated. Some things are sophisticated in our past, but we're hopeful and we're filled with this expectation that as we submit these things to God, that he can have a huge impact on the way our relationship begins to flourish. We have run out of time, but Francine, uh, one quick little word from you about the sorts of things when people go to the marriageresourcecenter.org, uh, what sort of resources will they find there? And, and of course, your Smart Loving series, just a, a few, uh, just a quick yeah. moment on that. Yes, sure. So firstly, the best website to go to is smartloving.org because that's where we have all our courses and things. So the Marriage Resource Centre is orientated more towards um, therapists and counsellors and, and community leaders and things. So, But if you go to Smart Loving first, that's probably where you get the overview. So we've got lots of online courses. We've got a um, you know, articles. I think there's about 500 articles up there. Um, lots of these tips that I've been talking about, they're all there. We've been doing a series of posts in the last um, two months on this topic so people can go there they can read more about and get more details read more about see more of our dirty laundry and examples there and they can also make contact with us um, through there or through our private facebook community and so on we've got um, lots of, uh, of different ways to to support couples in their journey of faith and journey of love. Well, Francine, always love the way you so beautifully are able to articulate some of these challenges that we all face in our relationships. And so uh, smartloving.org or marriageresourcecentre.org, Francine Parola, she and her husband Byron, directors of the Marriage Resource Centre, co-authors of the Smart Loving series. Francine, thanks so much for being with us once again today on 2020. It's a joy. Thank you, Neil. Have a great day. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.